Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Peter Russell. I've known about Peter for a long time. I read two of his books, the TM book and the Global Brain back in the early 80s and really enjoyed them and um, been sort of following his career from a distance so it's, it's really a, a joy to be speaking with him today. Let me just read a brief bio from the back of his book. Peter gained an honors degree in physics and experimental psychology at the University of Cambridge, England, and a postgraduate degree in computer science. Uh, in other words, he had the kind of adolescence I'd like to have in my next lifetime. Um, he studied meditation and Eastern philosophy in India. In fact, he became a teacher of transcendental meditation in 1969. I became one a year later. And on his return, conducted research into the neurophysiology of meditation at the University of Bristol. As an author and lecturer, he has explored the potentials of human consciousness, integrating Eastern wisdom with the facts of Western science, and shared with audiences worldwide his discoveries and insights about the nature of consciousness, global change, and human evolution. He's given a lot of programs in various businesses, and his books include The TM Technique, The Brain Book, The Upanishads. He didn't write The Upanishads, but he did a commentary on them or something. The Global Brain Awakens and Waking Up in Time. He also created the award-winning videos, The Global Brain and The White Hole in Time. Um, and his website is peterrussell.com. So today we're going to be talking a lot about this book, I think, From Science to God. And um, I'm of the opinion that, and I think Peter might be also, that the ideas pre presented in this book are really earth-shaking, really fundamental, very important actually have implications for the survival of life on Earth, or the non-survival, as the case may be, hopefully the survival. So I think it's just going to be a really interesting conversation. But um, Peter, let me just properly welcome you. I haven't even switched the camera to you yet. Um, so hello. And um, let's learn a little bit about you before we really get into talking about the more kind of philosophical, scientific ideas. OK. <clears throat> Um, well, as, as you said in the introduction, I started off as a scientist, and that was my love, and I was good at it. I was always in the background, sort of interested in the mind and consciousness, but it was a sort of, it, it was a hobby thing. I'd sort of, back in my teenage years, read about yoga, and this was when we thought yoga was about lying on beds of nails and sticking things through your cheeks. <laughs> this was way back when yoga was just beginning to get noticed. So I went, I went to university, I went to Cambridge, I was studying mathematics and theoretical physics, then you said I moved into psychology. And the move to psychology came really because I was getting more and more interested in consciousness. I was realizing that physics, much as I love physics, and I was at the stage where I could sort of solve Schrodinger's equation for the hydrogen atom, which means nothing to most people, but it's a huge thing in physics that from pure mathematics you can start deducing hydrogen and the chemistry of hydrogen. I realized it was going to tell me nothing about the mind or consciousness. And the fascinating question to me was how had hydrogen, you know, from which the universe began, what began from atoms or, or even energy, but it became hydrogen, which is just a colorless gas, had evolved into species such as ourselves who could do the mathematics of hydrogen. And that to me was fascinating. I realized physics was never going to answer that. So I, I looked to psychology and got fascinated by the brain, but no one was really interested in consciousness in those days. And that's what took me into meditation. I realized the people who really sort of had understood consciousness or studied consciousness were not doing it by sticking EEGs on the scalp and measuring the electrical activity of the brain. They were 
sitting down and looking firsthand into their own consciousness through meditation and things like that. So that drew me into, into meditation. I started actually exploring some Buddhist practices, but didn't really get off on them at that stage and came across TM and it just worked. And I just fell into it. It just was, it was fascinating. And I met the Maharishi and he invited me out to India. And so I went to India in 69 and really got in depth there into studying meditation. And I think, I think two things happened in India. One, I realized there was something to spirituality. As a kid, you know, being a sort of budding scientist, I totally rejected religion when I realized it was, you know, just something I was meant to believe in. And, you know, when I was going through the process of confirmation and the Nicene Creed, you know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, blah, blah, blah. And I realized I was meant to actually sign off on this <laughs> as a belief system. It's like, no way. I thought it was just a chant. Anyway, when I was in India, I realized there was something to spirituality, not necessarily to religion as such, but they were all coming from a common source. And I got fascinated by what was that, that common source. And also realizing that so many of the problems we face in the world today, whether it's personal, environmental, social, economic problems, time and again, they come back to human consciousness, human decisions, human values. And yet, you know, we approach, we, we try to deal with the outside situation. We try to resolve the, the problem out there, never actually looking at what is it in our consciousness that leads us to create these problems in the first place. And so I came back from India, really moved by those two things, wanting to explore what is the essence of spirituality and how to share that in, in the world today. So I just thought that was really the most important thing to be doing. So that's how I started. Great. Yeah, I heard you say something in one of your recordings. It was something like uh, religion is the remnants of spirituality or something, yes. something like that. Yeah. that. That was a good phrase. It's, it's like, you know, some great sage comes along like the Buddha or Jesus or somebody and it really has not only concepts to impart to people, but an experience to impart. And then over the passage of time, it gets more and more and more diluted and you end up with something that ha bears very little resemblance to what that person was actually trying to impart. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes exactly. And the time it's translated that absorbed by a culture and usually the culture that's absorbing it is not an enlightened culture. They're, they're sort of fascinated by it, but they're being absorbed into an unenlightened culture mm. and ends up as, you know, ritual, dogma, doctrine, and the, the real essence is lost. You'll remember the phrase, knowledge crumbles on the hard rocks of ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> Getting right to the, the topic at hand, this, this book that I just read, From Science to God, why don't we start by having you explain to us what a paradigm is? Okay, a paradigm is, it was a term made popular, oh, about 30 years ago by Thomas Kuhn, 40 years ago probably now, um, who was a philosopher of science. And he was looking at scientific revolutions, how science changed its views. And he coined the word paradigm basically to mean the underlying set of theories that are accepted as sort of the current truth in any given area of science. So, you know, if we take physics, things like Einstein's theory of relativity and quantum theory are accepted as the current truth. 200 years ago, Newton's idea was the current truth or in you know, molecular biology, the current truth is, it, you know, DNA, 
that that's you know really important understanding DNA. So the paradigm is sort of the underlying theory within which science does all its business. And what Kuhn was fascinated by was the resistance we have to changing our belief systems. And it's like we hold on to our beliefs more strongly than almost anything else. I mean, I sometimes joke, we'll, we'll change homes, we'll change jobs, we'll even change partners, we'll even change gender <laughs> rather, rather than change our belief about things. You know, that's, I think it's as true in religion and in science. And he showed that you know, when, a new, when a new idea comes up that challenges the current paradigm, I mean, a good example of that is you know, four or five hundred years ago, we thought the Earth was the center of the universe. And when people came along with ideas like Copernicus or observations like Galileo that challenged that and said maybe the Earth's going around the sun, the church, which was the established paradigm hold at the time, you know, threatened them, threatened, put Galileo under house arrest. They couldn't take it. And they burned that other fellow, Bruno. Bruno, yeah. Bruno was burnt at the stake. Well, he did a lot of things wrong. He supported Copernicus. Uh -huh. He also said God was a woman. That was, <laughs> God was a she, not a woman. He said, he said God is she, not he. Uh, he was quite a revolutionary. Yes, and Galileo, you know, that's the threat at the time. You, you don't like the criticism to the current paradigm. And he showed that people hold on to their views. And then a new view is put forward and gradually gets new adherence. But it's a sort of fighting process. We hold on to our old views. And then finally, there's a shift and we take the new paradigm. And then, then that becomes reality for a hundred years or something. And then something else shifts. It's easy to scoff at that, you know, from our current perspective. But I suppose in, in its defense, partial defense, there's something to be said for uh, you know, a certain stability. I mean, we don't just drop everything at the slightest suggestion of, of a, a different idea. We have to have a certain stability, but there, but I, I believe that, you know, in general, it's been much too rigid and inert. Yes. I mean, I think what, what he was pointing out is when there's a real challenge to the paradigm, rather than sitting down and rationally saying, oh, maybe we've got it wrong, we, we ignore the challenge. We, we push it aside. Yeah. And you can see how people would do that, I mean, well, in one way you can see it because they've invested a lifetime, you know, and, and yeah. th in this day and age, they might have all sorts of funding and all sorts of, you know, published papers and whatnot uh, that are about to be invalidated or, yeah. you know, removed from them, the funding. And uh, so you can see how you can sympathize with them in a way. Yeah, well, in fact, that's happening today in, in cosmology where you know, the current paradigm is the Big Bang model. Mm -hmm. And I was reading a paper in New Scientist recently saying, you know, there's a, there's a lot of other views, but they can't get funding. What gets funding is anything which supports the Big Bang model. But people coming up with alternative views mm. find it very hard to get support. So just for a moment, talk a little bit about Kuhn's um, explanation of anomalies and how yeah. an anomalies challenge the status quo understanding. And there's also a bit of a humorous angle on it in terms of science progressing through a you know, series of funerals or something, I think you put that it. Was, that was actually <laughs> Max Planck who said, um, science proceeds not because scientists change their minds, but the old scientists, the scientists who hold the old view eventually die out. <laughs> I think somebody paraphrased that as science proceeds funeral by funeral. Right. <laughs> um, yes, the, the anomaly is the, the, the observation or the finding that threatens the old paradigm. So mm -hmm. 
when we're talking about the, you know, the old view of the universe with the Earth at the centre, that paradigm actually had two bits. One, that the Earth was at the centre, but also that all these stars, all the, all the heavenly bodies moved in circles because Plato said the heavens are perfect and circular motion is perfect and therefore everything moves in circles in the heavens. And the anomaly was the planets because they didn't. In fact, the word planeta in Greek means to wander. These were the wandering stars. They moved forwards, they moved backwards, what we call retrograde. They sort of wandered around, passed each other, and nobody could explain how the planets moved. This was the anomaly. But because everybody was wedded to circles, they dreamt up these complex things of circles, rolling around circles, trying to adjust the movements. And there's great debates about whether you could do it in like 112 circles or 120 circles. How many circles did it take to explain all the planet's movements? <laughs> and it never quite worked. Yeah. So that was the anomaly. But the anomaly was people try to explain the anomaly in the existing model. And that's because we're tied to the existing model. So we try to explain it in that. And, and then it takes, you know, a brave soul to come along and say, maybe we can explain this differently. And that's what Copernicus did. He said, if we make the sun the center, then we can begin to understand why the planets move as they do. If the planets, if the earth is another planet going around the sun, then we can begin to understand things. So the anomaly is the observation which begins to which cannot be explained. Basically, the anomaly cannot be explained within the old paradigm. But what Kuhn showed is we hold on to the old, we try to explain it in that way, and that's when we get ourselves in a twist. Sure. And so, you know, then eventually Galileo came along with his telescope and the bishops refused to look through it because obviously it couldn't be true. And, uh, but then eventually Newton came along and provided the mathematics for understanding yeah. the laws of motion and, and, and the whole thing began to make sense. And, you know, there had been a series of funerals between them then and then. And so the paradigm pretty much shifted. Yes, yeah. 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 Although it's interesting because I mean, although it's shifted intellectually in our experience, we sort of live in the old paradigm still. We, mm -hmm. you know, we talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. We still see the earth here and the sun going round us. Yeah. Although we know it's different. Of course, if you go um, to the South Pole, you just sort of see the sun, you know, going around just, the horizon. And, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Okay, so it's easy to look back on these people and think, oh, weren't they foolish and, and stuck in their ways and, and uh, we know so much better now. But... Fact is, we are as much stuck in a paradigm which probably needs revising as those, you know, middle-aged people were stuck in theirs, and that is the materialistic paradigm and mm -hmm. the materialism. So let's let's talk about that a little bit, and and what are some of the anomalies that are starting to peck away at that paradigm? Yes, yeah. Well, I think the current yeah the current paradigm, the materialist paradigm, which really pervades all of science. It, it's a deep deep paradigm it pervades you know physics biology chemistry almost every science believes that the fundamental nature of the universe is space time matter energy and once we understand this physical world space time of matter energy we will understand the universe and be able to explain everything but basically the real world is the physical world and very few people question that it just seems so natural various things which question that there's things like you know, paranormal phenomena, healing, um, clairvoyance, those sorts of things, precognition, which don't quite fit into it. But I don't think they're real anomalies. I mean, who knows? We may one day be able to explain those things. 
I think the real anomaly for the current materialistic paradigm is consciousness itself, the very fact that we are aware, that I'm actually having experiences now. I'm not just a biological automaton doing its thing and talking to you. I'm actually experiencing it. I'm having thoughts, I'm having feelings, and I'm aware of them. And there's nothing in the current scientific worldview that explains this. In fact, what's fascinating is any theory in science is validated by its ability to predict things, predict the future, predict change, predict how the world is. And there's nothing in the current scientific worldview that predicts that any of us should ever have an experience. But we don't, we don't then question the current scientific worldview. We try to explain that within the materialistic view. So the current way that we try to explain it is we think that our consciousness comes out of brain activity in some way, something to do with the complexity of the information processing, creates experience. But the big problem here in, in philosophy, it's called the hard problem, of how is it that something we assume to be unconscious, matter, the matter of the brain, ever produces something as immaterial as consciousness itself. I think that's the anomaly, is the very fact we are aware. That's the one thing that cannot be explained. And yet what we are trying to do is explain it within the old system. Do materialistic scientists recognize that as a, an anomaly? Is it really in their faces, so to speak, something that really keeps them up at night? Or do most of them just brush it off and ignore it and go on about their work? I think it varies a lot. Who, who knows? I, I would say most people just sort of ignore the problem. And that's been the way it is in the past. We've ignored consciousness. We, you know, science, we can't measure it and it doesn't seem to affect reality. Although with quantum theory and things, all of those things begin to say, hang on, the observer, the act of observation is somehow important. So it's sort of, it's pointing to consciousness. But I think generally they sort of ignore it. They say one day, one day we'll understand the brain so well, we'll understand how it creates this subjective worldview. And I think, but there's others who are, I mean, I think there's a growing number, small, but a growing number who are beginning to say, hang on, we really maybe need to question things here. Do some of them um, consider consciousness to be a, well, I, I was going to start drawing the analogy between consciousness and the electromagnetic field, you know, and, mm -hmm. and radio and television transmitters and so on. And, you know, a radio transmitter is a physical thing that stimulates a kind of a non-physical field. Yeah. But then that gets us right into speaking of consciousness as a field, not because the radio transmitter doesn't create the electromagnetic right. field, right. It, it just stimulates it. Yeah. And so the, that, then we'd have to say, okay, well, if we're going to go for that metaphor, then the brain doesn't create consciousness. It, it's a sort of a, a receiver of, of a sort. Right. But yes, I mean, there were people, I was reading something today about that. I think there's people who take that view, but it's still in a way believing that the physical world is the real world and that consciousness is something else within the physical world. Yeah. And I, th I think part of the problem is that we make consciousness a noun and we then think that consciousness is some thing in the world to be known and explained rather than recognizing that, you know, the truth is that we are conscious. That's the, that's the real truth, that everything we know takes place in our own experience. When we add N-E-S-S, -S, ness, to a word, we take an adjective, which is describing something, and make it into a noun in order to talk about it. But that doesn't mean that it exists. I mean, we can talk about 
you know, being happy. Happy is an experience. But happiness as a thing doesn't exist. We can't go and study happiness as a thing. We can study you know, the experience of being happy. And I think it's the same thing with being conscious. We all know probably the one, the one thing we cannot doubt is that each of us is aware. We can, we can doubt our experiences. I mean, right now we might all be living in the matrix and it might all just be, you know, a virtual reality. But still, we couldn't doubt that we are aware. Yeah. And then when, when we take it, that's the truth that we are aware, but when we turn it into a noun as consciousness, we somehow separate it from ourselves and start looking to explain it as another thing in the world. And I think this is, this is one of the fundamental mistakes. We, mm -hmm. we lose sight of the fact that you know, we are embedded in consciousness. Everything we know is happening in our experience. All our theories are just things we are aware of in the mind, con constructions we've made. Mm. Um, you know, things exist, this book exists, but then, you know, spiritual people talk of pure existence um, or, or being, you know, which yeah. is pretty good words. They have a, a non-physical connotation, you know, yeah. just the now, that kind of thing. Um, the, uh, back to the analogy or back to the example of the, the sun appearing to go around the earth. I mean, even now, as you say, it, it looks to us like that's what happens, uh, but we know intellectually and through our scientific you know, investigation that that's not what, what's going on. And by the same token, things appear to us to be physical, but quantum mechanics and, and advanced physics have, have told us that you can't find physicality there if you look deeply enough. Right, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's, I think it's an apt comparison where the kind of everyday, ordinary, apparent reality is one thing, but the actual reality is something else entirely. Yes, yes. And I think it's fascinating. This is something that modern science is showing us. As you say, there's, in a way, there's nothing there. When we look down into what is substance made of, you know, first of all, we discovered it was largely empty space with mm -hmm. electrons and protons flying around creating atoms. And then we realized that electrons and protons aren't things in the sense we think of things. They're just potentials of having a certain observation. And I mean, it was, um, it was Hans-Peter Dürer, German physicist, current physicist, physicist, who said, Whatever's, whatever matter is, it's not made of matter. Yeah. It, it, it's, although I think all we can say ultimately is there's information there. There's information, you know, an electron. It isn't a thing. It, it, it has something we call charge. We don't know what charge is or spin or mass. We don't know what they are. They're just numbers. And we, we can detect the information and know how the information unfolds. And that's what I think mathematics and theoretical physics does. But it, there's no thing there. The thingness comes in our experience. I mean, the book appears solid because all the forces holding the atoms and molecules and cells of your hand together will not go, will not go through the forces holding all the bits of the atoms of the book together. And so it's impenetrable. And so there's this solid experience. But yeah, there clearly, there clearly is a world out there, but we don't know what that's like. It's certainly not like our experience. Our experience is something that's constructed for us. The brain, basically the brain is putting together a picture, a representation of what is out there. Mm -hmm. And then we, we experience that representation and take that to be the physical reality. And what we're discovering is it's nothing like it. Right. And a dog has its interpretation and a moth yeah. has its, its interpretation and a, exactly. a bat has a different one. And 
Yeah. So, and who's to say that one is better than another? <laughs> you know, right. Maybe one is. But well, yeah, I mean, in many respects, a dog's is better than ours. You know, their <clears throat> their sense of smell and hearing. Yeah. So we're all just kind of getting slivers of of what's actually mm -hmm. going on. Yeah, and making our own individual models, representations of it. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of, you know, the materialistic paradigm seems to me is on pretty shaky ground because if you look closely enough, there is no such thing as material. Yes. Yeah. We don't know what matter is. I mean, we're, we're discovering we don't really know what space and time are. Scientists for a long time have known they don't know what energy is. They're just terms we use to describe how our experience comes to us. So, so I don't know if you've watched any of these debates between Deepak Chopra and people like, you know, Richard Dawkins and Michael Shermer and Sam Harris and all that stuff. They go back and forth. It's quite entertaining. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, I know I haven't watched them. Oh, you should. You get a kick out of it. <laughs> Deepak gets all excited and those guys, you know, call him a charlatan and it, it, it's kind of very emotional. But um, I don't know. I, I side with Deepak in terms of the... the and, and I don't know how these guys can, I mean, if you think about it, as we're doing now, as we're talking about it now, uh, you have, you're left, at, you know, you, you might not want to jump to the conclusion that consciousness is the ultimate reality, but at least it should humble you in, into realizing that, you know, materialism is a lot more tenuous than, you know, we might assume. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is... Probably, you know, coming back to the paradigm, this is an example of people holding on to the old view despite the challenges in their face. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, I think it was Schopenhauer says, first you're ignored, then you're ridiculed, and then finally you're accepted as if it's the truth that's always been staring you in the face. <laughs> and I think so often we're at the stage of, you know, we got past the being ignored, and now it's the ridicule. And as yeah. you say, so Dawkins will ridicule Deepak. Mm -hmm. The more advanced physicists these days, you know, who are being ridiculed, guys like John Hagelin, uh, you know, are suggesting that consciousness is the ultimate reality, that if you get right down to it, uh, and he even wrote a paper, Is Consciousness the Unified Field, mm -hmm. uh, that if you go deep enough, there, there are parallels which are not merely analogous, but which are actual. Uh, so let's play with that for a bit, that the idea yes. that consciousness is the ultimate reality, the sum and substance of creation. I would, I, I would certainly go with that. Mm -hmm. um, I would approach it a slightly different way from Hegelin and, and other people. To me, there's, there's two parts of this. I mean, one we've touched on is that we, there's nothing we can really say about the external reality, except there's a field of information there. I mean, you call it a field of being, but it's obviously a highly structured field of being because, you know, electrons different from a proton, you know, the substance of my fingers different from the space around it. It's clearly highly differentiated all the way from, you know, the subatomic levels right up to galaxies, the whole universe. So it's full of information. Mm -hmm. But anything we say about it is just a projection from the mind. So that's one part. Then the other part comes from where we were talking about, you know, consciousness being created by the brain. The view that's gradually gaining momentum is that consciousness is already there. You know, we talk about animals being conscious, you know, a fly is probably having its own little tiny experience. And there's nowhere you can draw the line. Because if you draw the line and say, you know, 
A fly has its tiny experience, but maybe a worm doesn't. You have to explain what is the difference whereby a physical process in a worm doesn't give rise to experience, but a physical process in a fly does. And you're back to the hard problem. But instead of putting it in the human brain, you put it down the evolutionary tree way back to a much finer level. But it's the same problem raises its head. And what I think a growing number of people are coming to is the realization there is no line, that that capacity for experience is there always in the universe. It doesn't get created once some particular nervous system or complexity of matter gets created, that matter doesn't create consciousness. Consciousness, the capacity for experience is already there. But as you've already suggested, you know, the, the experience of a worm is probably you know, a billionth of what we have. It's just a tiny, 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 tiny image in awareness. It's not, but it's not nothing at all. So on that view, you have to say the potential for consciousness goes all the way down into what we call matter itself. But, but there's nothing of matter there. And so this field of being, this field of being is itself or has itself the capacity for awareness. That doesn't mean to say that atoms experience the world at all, but that potential for awareness is there. And maybe it's only when it gets to the structure of a simple cell where you've got a lot of chemical information processing going on that awareness as we know it begins to sort of come along. I think awareness and life are closely connected. So in that view, you come to the view that the universe is just it's an aware field of being, aware of itself. And in that awareness of itself, creating its experience of the material world, where it's, whether it's the material world of fly experiences or we experience or a blue whale experiences. It's the universe is knowing itself. It's knowing this field of consciousness, which we think is, it looks to us like the material world. And so we see this field of consciousness, our senses detect the information that's out there, and then we create this experience of materiality. But the material world, as we think of it, is act actually only exists in our experience. What is out there, I would argue, is just a field of being, knowing itself at, at all different levels of creation, all different levels. Here's a Sufi teaching that you quoted in your book. God sleeps in the rock, dreams in the plant, stirs in the animal, and awakens in man. Yes. I'd say that in most men, God is still stirring, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> potentially awakens. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we've, there's two levels of awakening. We've, we've awoken to the fact we are conscious. Right. We, we have, you know, we recognize that we're conscious, but we haven't actually awoken to the true nature of consciousness. Yeah. That's what I think a lot of the spiritual traditions are about, is that true, full awakening of consciousness. So something you just said was very interesting. If we say, if we postulate that consciousness is the ultimate reality, that if you take anything and boil it down to its, you know, look deeply enough, go down to its fundamental essence, you find it's, it's consciousness. Yeah. Uh, then, then there's nothing but consciousness. If you say that, yeah. then, then the conclusion is there's nothing but consciousness. Yes. So everything that's happening, stars and planets and iPads and computers mm -hmm. and people and dogs and everything else is, is just consciousness so, somehow appearing to assume forms and interacting within itself. Uh, yes. Um, yes. This is, 
trying to explain this is, is the hard bit because we're so linked, caught in material thinking. It isn't that consciousness assumes forms. It's there are form. The forms are in the structure of consciousness. Yeah, by that's which why I, I said mean, appearing to assume yeah, forms. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so I mean, just to take, I mean, the way I see it is like, so you have this field of being. Mm -hmm. There's a field of being which isn't material. Right. which does have the capacity for awareness. And so you get a little, a little tiny knot in that field of being is something we call an electron, maybe. It's like it's a knot. And that, this is what you know, things like string theory are saying. You know, the, these are little circles of strings, the collapsed dimensions, but like it's a little knot in reality. So there's a little knot in, consciousness, in the consciousness field we call an electron. There's another little knot we call a proton. Those knots work together to create a bigger knot, which we call an atom. Could you also nope. call them excitations, as, as if yeah. the, the field of uh, not the silent field of being stirs into waves, and one yeah. one wave is an electron, another wave is, wave is a proton, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Okay. It, exactly. That's another, probably maybe a better way of putting it. They're, let's use that. They're excitations which sort of exist and persist over time. It's mm -hmm. an excitation, but it's just an excitation in in this field of being, this aware field of being, and that's why again I'm just coming back to this point: consciousness isn't a thing, but it is aware, we are aware, and this field of being is aware. And those, those excitations gather together into more and more complex systems and eventually reach a complexity where they are beginning, the excitations form a system which is beginning to notice the excitations around it, beginning to sense the excitations around it. And in doing so, begin to put together a picture of how the excitations around it are structured. And it's like, oh, there's a, you know, skin, a cell may notice, oh, there's an excitation touching my skin called a, you know, sugar molecule. And so experience begins to build out of the excitations of consciousness, beginning to notice other excitations of consciousness around it. And then the actual form appears in the experience. That's where the form appears, is in the experience of an individual system, whether it's a cell or a human being or whatever. That get to, it's a hard thing to put into words. I mean, I have this sort of vision myself, but it's always difficult. How to actually put into words? Yeah, but it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing to contemplate. It really kind of takes you deep when you think about it, that consciousness is, you know, there's that phrase from physics, uh, sequential spontaneous symmetry breaking or something, you know that phrase? Uh, yeah. and, and how, you know, and we've seen those charts where things get more and more unified as, as you get yeah. down to a more fundamental level and at a certain point you only have four forces and then those, some of those get unified and the attempt is, you know, to understand the, the ultimate unification and then taking it in the other direction there's this, there's this sort of a sequential breaking of symmetry where things become more mm. and more complex, diverse, you know. Yes. And, yes. But it's, you can always just swing right back, you know, take it down to its essence. If you if you begin to mistake any of these diversities as mm. actual physical substance, Beca yeah. because you know, if you if you do, you're not looking closely enough because ultimately they aren't. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think. I mean, the reason we don't see everything as a field of consciousness, we see it as material objects. We see it as matter, energy. Mm -hmm is because all we experience is the representation which appears in our own individual mind. And that model is something which appears in awareness, 
but the model itself doesn't include awareness. Hmm. And so our picture of the world is of color, sounds, solid objects, but we never see, we never see these things as consciousness because these are just the appearance that appears in consciousness. I mean, I sometimes think of it, it's like, you know, you hear that a movie is made of light, that the film is just constructed out of light. And then you then say, oh, let me study the movie to see where the light is. And you watch the movie again and again, and you study the characters and what they're saying and everything that's happening. And you say, I can't find any source of light there mm -hmm. because the movie is made of light, but the source of light, which is the projector, if you like, is not actually included in the movie. And I think it's the same with our experience. Everything is a field of consciousness experiencing itself. And we are living in the movie that, we are created, that we've created. And that movie doesn't actually include the consciousness. But yeah. The movie is in consciousness, but it doesn't include consciousness. And yet saints and sages have turned around, looked at the projector, come, light coming out of the projection yeah. booth, gone back into the booth, <laughs> and uh, the, the analogy begins to break down, but, that, but their descriptions are that when they look at things, they actually do see them in terms of consciousness. They, yes. see, them, they see them, not only see, but everything is apprehended in terms of its fundamental value as consciousness. And then its, its relative values, its color, its shape, all that, are, are regarded as kind of secondary. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And I think, I mean, what we're doing here is sort of pointing to it from a theoretical way. Mm -hmm. And and you're right, that you know, the people who've really done the inner work and observed their own mind closely and settled the mind to a level of stillness where you can begin to experience what's going on, I think they are people who are beginning to experience this for themselves. And that's what we call higher states of consciousness, is people experiencing this truth for themselves. Hmm. And this to me is, you know, is a way in which I think science and spirituality can begin to meet rather than dismissing these experiences as just a mind deranged by too much meditation. <laughs> we can begin to see, ah, you know, if it is all consciousness, then the people who really explored consciousness are coming to that same truth experientially rather than what we're doing here is a more theoretical mm -hmm. analysis. And you and I have also done our, our lab work in this. And, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. Now, it's interesting you should mention settle the mind. Be, you know that second verse in the Yoga Sutra is that yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind. Yes. And um, the, so what, we're, what you've alluded to is, as being the key to seeing things aright, seeing things as consciousness, which they actually fundamentally, essentially, and ultimately are, is that we need to somehow function from a more settled condition. Yes. And, and, and it's interesting because a few minutes ago we were talking about the, the very manifestation of creation as being a, you know, an excitation, a stirring yeah. up, a stirring up of a, of a, a yeah. fundamental field. And it's interesting to note that some sages like Ramana and Maharshi and others have said, you know, from their perspective, nothing ever happened, the universe never manifested. Mm -hmm. um, that they've, they've sort of come back to that perfectly settled state mm -hmm. be prior to the emergence of the manifest creation. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, comment on that. Oh, I could comment for hours about the Yoga Sutras. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I've actually recently been fascinated. I mean, let's start with go there and then go into what you were saying about yeah, sure. the experience. That first line, well, it's the second line. The right. first line says, here begins the yoga suit, here begins this, whatever it is, the yeah. treatise on yoga. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the second line is, is how do you translate it? It's like yoga. Yoga is chitta vritti niroda, which right. is yoga. You could, you could yoga, yoga means you know, return to connection, oneness, being, whatever mm -hmm. you want, the, that unity. It's the whirling of mind stuff. Chitta is consciousness or mind stuff. It's, it's like, it, and it's the whirling of mind stuff. It's like, and that's the whirling of, we usually take that to be the whirling of thoughts. Our minds are caught up in the thinking, we're going here, we're going there. And then Niroda is the key word, and it's really interesting because it's the common translation you say is cessation. And then, well, there's two things about it. One, how do you, what does cessation mean? Does it mean the relaxing, the under, you know, the relaxing of the whirling of mind stuff? Or, as it was translated by a lot of Indian teachers up to probably the early 20th century, it's the restraining. Mm. I was actually at a um, yoga retreat center oh, a few months back, and I was amazed that on, on all their t-shirts, it was saying, um, yoga is the restraining of the thought waves of the mind. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> because I think what's becoming clear, it's like, you don't, if you try to restrain the mind, you're fighting a losing battle. Mm -hmm. It's how do you let the mind relax and settle down? So it's true, we need, the mind to be quieter. But then I started coming across other meanings of Niroda, which are actually gaining interest, that, that Rhoda can actually mean to be caught, to be imprisoned. And Niroda, when Ni in Sanskrit, N-I, is the same as X in Latin. It means to come out of, you know, to exit, to exclude. All those X words mean to come out of. And Ni in Sanskrit means to come out of. And so, Niroda can also be translated as coming out of bondage, mm. coming out of the prison. And in that sense, you could translate the yoga, first, that second line is yoga is freedom from the whirling of mind stuff. Nice. Which to me is actually makes more sense because you don't have to just still the mind. It's like where we're really going in uh, awakening of consciousness, maybe stilling the mind is a first stage, that cessation of the whirling, but through that cessation of the whirling, we can begin to remain in contact, we can maintain the state of yoga, even with the whirling of mind stuff. Sure. And in that sense, it's freedom from the whirling. We're not, most of us spend our time caught up in the whirling, we're caught up in our thoughts, our worries, our plannings, our hopes, our expectations, what's going on. And I think what many of the teachers are pointing to, that, that still goes on, but one retains that inner connection mm -hmm. w w with the oneness, the yoga. Yeah, well, and you're familiar with the, the verses in the Gita, of course, you know, uh, be without the three gunas, meaning, yes. meaning, you know, still the mind, and then establish a yoga, perform action. In fact, yes. fight a battle in that case, do something very dynamic, but not lose the freedom of uh, established in, in silence. Right. Right, and so I, I see that, that second line of the Yoga Sutras may actually be pointing to that. It, it just feels, to me, it makes more sense and feels more, more true to, to see it as freedom from the whirling of mind stuff rather than the other extreme of stopping the whirling of mind stuff. Mm. Another point that comes to mind, and, and hopefully we've wrapped up this, this point because it's beautiful and I don't want to rush past it. So any, anything more to say on this before we move on to slight, something slightly different? Is there anything we're missing here? I don't think so. You were going, before I answer that question, you were taking it somewhere else about science and the Yoga Sutras. 
Uh, well, yeah, the thought that's in my mind now, I think, might do that also, which is okay. that, you know, it's interesting. If you look back throughout history, if you think of knowledge as a territory, it used to be that religion really commanded the whole territory, at least in, in many cultures. Mm -hmm. and, and then this thing called science was born, and it began chipping away at the territory. Okay, we've got astronomy. You, you, we'll take care of that. You guys take care of it. You know? yeah. and, and then, okay, we've got genetics. And, and um, so the, the religion's territory has been shrinking, looked at in this way. And if we think of you know, what science does, it uses, generally uses instruments of some kind in order mm -hmm. to extend the capabilities of our limited human senses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have microscopes, telescopes, the Large Hadron Collider, all these different things. But when you think about it, a single human cell is a more sophisticated entity than the Large Hadron Collider. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. there's something so miraculous even about a single cell, and here we are, trillions of them. And so I'm always fascinated by the notion that the human mind and body, the human nervous system, is the ultimate scientific instrument. And that, you know, using it in the proper way, learning how to use it in the proper way, can enable us to pretty much, in a scientific way, usurp the rest of the territory that religion <laughs> still owns. In other words, yeah. anything, anything, God, angels, whatever, can be scientifically, experientially, repeatedly, systematically investigated and determined to, you know, what it is, whether or not it is. Yes, yes, yeah, oh, several things here. Firstly, I think one of the misunderstandings between science and spirituality is that science thinks religion is talking about the physical world. And so, you know, people like Dawkins have said, well, we've looked out there, you know, we've looked into space, there's no God. We've looked down into <laughs> Athens, there's no God down there. We've looked back to the Big Bang, we don't need a God. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Therefore, religion's all wrong. QED. Yeah. I'm missing the whole point right. that really spirituality is about our inner experience. That's mm -hmm. where I think all spirituality came from. That's the seed before it got usurped by culture and things. It was, it was about this awakening experience. And that is something that's an internal experience. And we, we can approach that scientifically, which doesn't mean the current way we approach things scientifically is by measuring them, building, as you say, large colliders or whatever it is, timing things, weighing things. But that's just the method of science, the, the current science. The actual process is one of really open investigation. It's saying, let's you know, make this hypothesis, explore this hypothesis, see what conclusions we come to, and then test it by comparing it with other people. There's that thing of coming to a consensus truth. And that's why scientists publish all their papers. Do you agree? Have I made a mistake here? And that's how science, material science, moves forward. I think exactly the same principles can apply to our own inner exploration of our own consciousness. And as you say, the human being, the human body, the human brain, is the perfect apparatus, probably the most sophisticated apparatus on this planet to explore consciousness. And we can make hypotheses. We can say, you know, maybe if I do a certain meditation practice, this will have a certain effect on my mind. And we do it and we test it. And if it turns out it does, we've got a conclusion. Yes, this practice seems to help this. And then we compare it with other people. You know, do you find the same thing? And if everybody else says no, we say, oh, Maybe it was the food I was eating or something. But if other people agree, then we, you know, we're arriving at a consensus conclusion. 
And you could say that all the, you know, the great spiritual teachings of the world are the publications of people who've done these inner inner, this inner work, this inner scientific exploration, and are coming to the same basic conclusion time and again. So I think you're right, we can, we can approach it scientifically, and this, this, our body, our minds, are the ultimate vehicle for doing that. I yeah. think that's what, all, that's what all the great sages have done. And it's interesting to note that um, people who haven't done the personal experimentation tend to see the various spiritual traditions as conflicting with one another. You know, because they can't kind of see the essence of them because they haven't experienced that essence. Whereas you go to a conference like the Science and Non-Duality Conference and, and it's a bunch of people who've done all sorts of spiritual paths, you know, all mm -hmm. coming together and they're pretty much of one mind as to the, you know, the, what all the various spiritual traditions have been saying. They can, they mm -hmm. can kind of see the common thread because yes. it, it, it jibes with their own experience. Yes, yeah. yeah. And th th that I think is what, what fascinates, as I said at the beginning, that's what fascinates me is finding out what that common thread is. And the key for that is my own experience. I mean, I, I say my lab work is going off on retreat for 10 days. I love to just go into silence for 10 days into a meditation retreat. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's when I do my research. That's when by sitting down, letting the mind become quiet. And it usually takes two or three days to get rid of all that sleepiness and fatigue I didn't know was there. <laughs> and once that is gone and the mind starts becoming clearer, to really I can begin to observe and practice and carry out my own little sort of subjective experiments in terms of what really works, what quietens the mind or allows it to settle down. And I would say almost everything I have to teach these days in terms of spiritual practice comes not from other books or other teachers, it comes from what I've discovered in my own personal lab work. Mm -hmm. And then sharing that with others because it seems to it seems to fit what what the other great teachers have said. I mean, time and again, you probably have this experience. It's like in meditation, it's like, ah, now I get what they were pointing towards. Right. I'd been seeing it. I mean, when I first got involved in this, it was like seeing everything as like these marvelous, flashy experiences that were going to happen. And just gradually over time, it gets simpler and simpler and simpler. And it's just like, ah, now I now I get what they were pointing to. I suppose one objection people might raise, and I think I heard Sam Harris raise this, was that um, you know, as opposed to rigorous science, which gets published, in which you know, even in the in the papers themselves, they describe what kind of equipment they're using. They're using yeah. an Acme such and such with a three millimeter this and that. You know, it's, it's yeah. really they really because they yeah. want to they want others to be able to replicate the experiments. Yeah. Yeah. And if everybody uses different equipment and different parameters and whatnot, then there's no real true repli replication. Mm. And when it comes to spirituality, it's kind of sloppy by comparison. There yeah. are yeah. so many techniques and practices, and every teacher is teaching things somewhat differently. So yeah. how do you? Kind Kind of reconcile that and, and if we want if we want to apply scientific principles to spiritual investigation or explore subtler realities through spiritual techniques how do we deal yeah. with that problem i i think it's, it's a very real point that sam's making you're making and i think we shouldn't try and make the parallel too close it, it's right i mean the way we explore the physical world is much more precise and the, the way the inner world is explored is it's much looser. But I mean, I think for me, the point is that it can be scientific in that sense of being an open exploration and forming conclusions, even if it isn't done in that same precise way 
that science is done in the physical world. Mm. So I, I wouldn't, I don't think, I don't think it could be done. I can't see how it could be done in that same precise way. But saying, seeing that it's a scientific approach to me is a way of validating the approach. I, I don't think it can be that precise. Yeah. I mean, who's to say that the science as its practice is the ultimate arbiter of truth and that we need to be as anal retentive about you know, what our <laughs> instrumentation uh, in spiritual practice as science has to be in, in investigating you know, the, yeah. phys the physical world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even then, all that science is, you know, all that you come up with is just is more things that have been substantiated within our current paradigm. Yeah. You know? And so the Large Hadron Collider, Collider is substantiating what, you know, is in the current model of theoretical physics. Yeah. It's, it's not actually creating new truths. It's really validating our models. True. And, um, And also, I mean, so it finds the Higgs boson, and that's interesting, and it, it, it puts a lot of things together for us that we could only speculate about mm -hmm. before. But I guess you have to wonder about what is going to really have the biggest impact on the quality of our lives, both individually and as a society. Yeah. And I think you and I would agree that what spiritual development has to offer is far more impactful um, yes. in terms of quality of life and, and actually in terms of dealing with some rather serious problems that, that science is expected to solve for us but seems to be making worse. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And I think this is, you know, coming back to again what we were saying earlier, that the real problems are within us, in our own thinking, in our own consciousness. Most of the time we're approaching things from a sort of a sense of an e a separate ego out there to um, maintain, support this body and what it needs and we're sort of using the world for our own needs and I think that has run amok and this is what we're beginning to see in the world today and clearly if we're really going to solve our problems we need to be looking into our consciousness and how can we really practice or turn into reality inside ourselves all the sages are pointing to. I mean yes, discovering the Higgs boson, great, it shows that our current, well, it's actually thrown into doubt some of the current model. It isn't quite what we expected it to be. Mm -hmm. But so what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. you know, well, great, supposing we really do our models of how atoms work really is true. Does that solve, you know, the problems we're having on the planet, the environmental issues, the social breakdowns, these sorts of things, climate change? No. It's like it's on the sideline. It's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. We're pushing out the, the boundaries of our understanding of the cosmos and we may even arrive at a unified field theory, maybe tomorrow, 20 years time. And then again, so what? It's like we may not be here much longer to enjoy the results of understanding the unified field theory if we're not careful. Yeah, and of course people have said that, you know, especially when there's some argument about funding. People said that about going to the moon, you know, why, why bother? You know, it's made of rock, what are you going to do? Bring, bring back some rocks. But the very effort to go to the moon resulted in all kinds of technological breakthroughs which have benefited life on Earth yeah. in a number of ways. So, yeah. so I wouldn't say, let's ditch science and just all meditate. Oh, you know, all this scientific investigation and technological advancement is, is valuable and necessary. Yeah. But it's, we have a rather imbalanced situation if, if yeah. that's where all of our attention is without a counterbalancing uh, development of the inner. 
Absolutely. And, and the same argument applies to social action. I mean, we're talking mm -hmm. about helping the world. There's been this old argument, oh, you know, sitting in a cave meditating is not going to change the world. We need to get out there and lobby politicians, mm -hmm. change corporations, do all that. We need to do both. Mm -hmm. We need to basically tend to what is the problem inside and become better human beings and at the same time be out there doing whatever we can to create a better world. The two go hand in hand. I mean, if you're trying to create a better world out of just rage and fury and frustration, <laughs> you, you, you know, you'll create change, but it may not be the best change. But if you can come from seeing the problems, but being more centered and creative and aware in yourself and tapping into your own wisdom, I think you're going to create better solutions in the world. So yeah. the, two go, the two go hand in hand. As you say, it's a matter of balance. Sure. And we've seen that many times and there'll, there'll be some revolution like the Arab Spring or, and people say, oh boy, everything's really changing. And then, you know, it'll get even worse. And yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I introduced your book earlier by suggesting that it that we'll be talking about a topic that could be critical to the survival of the, of the human race. And uh, we're starting to delve into that right now. And I just want to kind of make the point that I think you and I would agree that Everything we see in the world, good or bad, from you know climate change to genetic engineering, whether that's good or bad, and everything else, political systems as malfunctioning as they are, and starvation, and you know AIDS, and everything else is. I mean, certainly there are certain viruses and diseases and so on that seem to be beyond our control, but even those are, are often created by us. Everything is a reflection of human consciousness. You yes, know? yes. Um, and, you know, if an asteroid comes crashing into the planet and a lot of people die, that we, we won't have to say that that's a reflection of human consciousness, although some, sure. would, some would say it is. But um, that at least, you know, 90% of the impact uh, that we have on the planet is a re or, or, or the things mm -hmm. that impact us are mm -hmm. a reflection of the sort of ambient or collective consciousness. And I guess this is what the global brain was about, as I recall, uh, that is created by the seven odd billion people in the world, each contributing their own little influence. Yes, yeah. Yes, so, and I made the point in the global brain, like, is it, is it going to become a sane global brain or an insane global brain? And the idea of the global brain was that, and this was before the internet was actually created, that I, I, I was working in computer networking and I saw the future of computers was not growing larger and larger computers, which all the science fiction stories of the time were saying, this was back in the 70s, but it was actually computers networking together to form more and more complex systems mm -hmm. and ultimately forming the same sort of complexity over the planet as we have inside our own brain. And so bringing up the question, what happens then? And, you know, we're approaching that, that sort of complexity. But still, the human brain is more complex than the internet. Mm -hmm. The whole internet is more complex. Sure, even a single brain is. Yeah, one yeah. single brain. Right. One single brain is more complex than the whole internet. Mm -hmm. But then, what is behind the functioning? You know, one, one human brain can function in a certain way and can be very selfish, almost evil, or definitely evil um, in some ways. Or another human brain can be very compassionate, saint-like, kind. The same brain functioning, or the very similar brains functioning in two totally different ways. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's nothing to do with the brain itself, but it's to do with the value systems behind the brain, that, that what we think is important and what's driving us. And I think it's the same with the internet. Are we driven by, will we be driven by money, 
it is at the moment, you know, how much porn can we sell or whatever, is that's the old way of thinking, or can a new way of thinking, can a higher consciousness come in and change our, our values? And that to me is the hope that the internet can actually be a tool for our spiritual awakening to help us wake up from this sort of ego-bound mode of consciousness into what the great sages have talked about as the liberated mode of consciousness. And it and is that, doing that already. It is doing that. You're doing that. Show, you're doing yeah. that. You're doing that with your show. You're interviewing, mm -hmm. I know, hundreds of people who are each in their own way pointing to the awakening and mm -hmm. their, their own advice, teaching, or whatever it is, is all helping that. And, and there's many, many other people doing what you're doing and just uh -huh. putting out their teachings. It's fascinating that we now, we're at a, at a time of global crisis like never before. And we have access to spiritual teachings like never before. Mm. We can basically access the whole of the world's wisdom from you know Tibetan texts written hundreds of years ago, being translated and put out there, to you know shamans, to people having their own awakening experiences. Two hundred years ago, all you had, if you were lucky, perhaps, was your parish priest. If 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 you were lucky that he was or she, no, just been he then was in any way. Mm. you know, more than just repeating the doctrines. Today, we have access to the world's spiritual traditions throughout history and we are honing in collectively on what is that essential truth. And that's what's fascinating to me is this collective honing in on that wisdom. Less and less are we seeing the differences, but we're coming to that common core. And this to me is what we, what we really need and it's happening faster and faster because there's a positive feedback here mm. that we're all we're all learning from each other. And you know, I, I watch you know other spiritual teachers on the internet. You know, people I love like Adyashanti, Rupert Spira, these sort of people, mm. and that fuels me. And you know, I may put things out on my own site which fuels other people. We're, we're all learning from each other. And whenever you have that feedback in a system, you get acceleration. And so I think just as the you know, technology and the crisis is accelerating, at the same time, the awakening of humanity is also accelerating, the spiritual awakening. Yeah, it's interesting. That, you know, there's that verse in the Gita, something like, uh, when dharma is in decay and a dharma prevails, I take birth age after age. You know, Lord Krishna is saying to, to restore yeah. uh, dharma or, you know, yeah. or righteousness or whatever. Yeah. And it's interesting <laughs> that it's kind of happening through this electronic medium. Yes. You know, it would, it would almost seem that, I mean, you could actually postulate that the very emergence of the internet was in, res and, uh, and everything that is being, you know, that it, and it, that it facilitates is in direct response to the, the severity of the crisis, because only something which could have a global impact could kind of be a, an adequate antidote to, to the, you know, the problems we face. Yeah, I think it's one of those immaculate things. It's perfect that it should come at this time in parallel. Probably inevitable yeah. that it would happen like this. Just to hammer home the point we've been discussing, I, I just want to reiterate one more time, mm -hmm. which is, that, you know, like climate change, for instance, and you write about it on your website quite a bit, so it obviously concerns you. And I read, I read some of your articles there. There are still corporate interests spending a lot of money to convince people it's, it's not happening because they can make money the next quarter if they do that. But the vast majority of scientists agree 98% or something of climatologists that 
you know, we're cooked uh, unless something really changes. You know, we're pretty much in for at least a two degree centigrade rise in temperature. The, there's an Antarctic ice sheet that is irreversibly melting, which will raise yep. sea levels by about three feet, which will inundate, you know, hundreds of millions of people in coastal cities. Yeah. And uh, if we go to six degrees, there were, there's no humans on the planet. So it's, it's a pretty serious problem. And, you know, a lot of people are really freaked out uh, who actually understand the problem. We can only hope, perhaps, that, that, that this will trigger an even greater acceleration of, of a spiritual upwelling. You know, if, if Gaia is a sort of a self-regulating yeah. system, and, and we're the agents through which that regulation can occur, uh, then, then hopefully severity of this problem is going to result in a true age of enlightenment, which mm -hmm. will actually neutralize the threat. Yeah. I think for it to do that, we have to see that it's coming back to that we are the, it's coming back to our own values and things and maybe maybe climate change will do that because we can see it has been caused by our own our own attachment to fossil fuels basically particularly oil mm -hmm. and you know yes it's easy to blame corporations selling us more and more oil and yet you know how many of us have given up our gas thirsty SUVs i mean some of us have but you know i see many people wonderfully conscious people talking about you know saving the environment but you know they're, they're driving they're driving cars and thirsty cars at that it's like we we don't want to give up our own comforts i think this is a big problem we're all we're all in this we're all in a way supporting the system there's very few people who are really living you know a sort of life which has zero carbon footprint very few mm. But if, but if we all had really efficient solar panels on our roofs and electric cars yeah. in the garage, which ran on, which had really good batteries, and, and yeah. you know, and batteries in the house which could store the solar yeah. energy, then yeah. boom, you have it. So there, there needs to be a technological innovation. Right, and this is a game where we need the balance. We need the activity, the activism, the technological changes, and the willingness to actually let go of our comforts. And that's where I think the spiritual thing comes in, because I think the basic mindset that rules so much of our lives which is that you know whether or not I'm happy depends upon what I have and what I do and so the belief is if if I give up this you know this luxury or whatever it is I'm not going to be so happy my life's not going to be so pleasant and that's what keeps us attached to having things and I think what all the great spiritual teachings are pointing to is whether or not you're at peace whether or not you're happy doesn't actually depend upon what you have or do it actually depends upon how you see things what your perception is and that's that's the shift that needs to happen but even then it's one thing to to understand that but it still takes that inner experience of, of letting go and you know, what we're coming back to settling the mind and coming back to realizing oh that that peace that i'm looking for is right here but it's all that thinking, worrying, planning, the whirling of mind stuff, which was actually veiling that natural quality of peace. And I think when people have that experience and they realize what I'm looking for is right here, I don't have to go out and do this and create this and have these wonderful things or experiences in order to be at peace. It can be right here. Then our attachment to the things and the whatever it is, the experiences begins to weaken and drop away. Yeah. Well, I can imagine that a society 
in which you know spiritual development is more dom more kind of common even than it is now would be a simpler one and and uh, just as we see spiritual people's lives tend to get simpler but you know we're, we're obviously not going to go back to an agrarian society in which we're all wearing loincloths and tilling the no. garden i mean no. people are going to always want their comforts so uh, you know whereas simplicity and a lower carbon footprint would be one part of the equation i i see an even more important part of the equation being a, a continued explosion of creativity which is going to give us technological uh, breakthroughs that will yes. <clears throat> enable us to travel and and be comfortable and so on without screwing things up so badly yeah yeah yes <clears throat> yeah and al gore just wrote a great article in rolling stone about that he's uh, he's you know it's a very optimistic article about uh, the you know how much actually innovation and and is really taking place and it's it sort of uh, yeah, worth reading. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. No, mm -hmm. I, I like his writing. Yeah, mm -hmm. look forward to seeing that. Yeah. Yes, it's um, it's it's how do we, how do we bring the wisdom to move through these times? Yeah. And, and I think again that comes from, allowing that being clear enough in our own minds to allow the wisdom to percolate through, rather than the conditioning that our society is laying on us about what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was just talking about technological advancement, and and obviously a lot of that has taken place without enough wisdom to make it, uh, you know, really benign and, and constructive. Yeah. So, you know, wisdom should be the first ingredient, and then if there's enough of that and enough creativity and intelligence, and yes. th then yeah. we can have technologies which are fundamentally guided by wisdom. Yeah. Not by yeah. Gr not by greed, not by short short sightedness in any way. Right. Yeah. And also, I think, again, it's that basic dichotomy between love and fear. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the ego mind lives in a, you know, sort of degree of fear one way or another. Am I going to get the things I need? What's happening? What do people think of me? You know, how's tomorrow going to be? Did I say the right thing? There's that sort of, there's a fear around. And that fear is something which comes, you know, out of that egoic thinking. And again, what so many of the teachers point to is when we let go of that, not only do we discover a sense of peace that's there, but there's also that quality of love, that mm -hmm. unconditional love, which isn't loving something for its own sake, but just a quality of love. And I think as more and more people do this, that love is going to begin to come into the world. We'll be, be acting out of a quality of love more than coming from a quality of fear. Nice. And I think that will begin to shift things. Mm -hmm. We've t talked about consciousness quite a bit, but, uh, but your book is called From Science to God. And I don't know if we've <laughs> talked about God quite as much as I'd like to yet. Okay. Um, how do you define God? Uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Not, well, I don't define God as some separate being or anything. To me, there is this mystical experience we've been touching on. This, what happens when you let go when the mind quietens, you connect with that's qualities of, we say, peace, love, there's often a sense of forgiveness with truth, with wisdom. And I think this experience is, is universal to the human being. It, it's there for everybody, but we're, our society is directing us out there the whole time. And I think this is what we could call the experience of the divine. If, if everything is conscious, if what we're talking about, the, the, the universe is a field of being which is essentially aware, 
then when we drop into these mystical states, we are connecting with the essence of the cosmos, but we are connecting with it in ourselves on a personal level. So if we're talking about you know, the essence of the cosmos, we could say is, I wouldn't, I prefer to use the word divine rather than God. God makes it a thing. Divine is more a characteristic. It is the essence of everything. And so when we, when we connect with that in, in meditation or in some mystical experience, we're connecting with that universal essence. And if you were living in a monotheistic culture and you had those experiences, then you would probably interpret it as some connection with some external divine being called God. And, and interesting, most of the qualities we ascribe to that monotheistic traditions ascribe to God, that God is love, the peace of God that passeth all understanding, um, the light of God, all these descriptions actually uh, equally refer to that, that own, our own mystical awakening. Mm -hmm. And so I think that experience has been ascribed to a unity with some external God rather than recognizing it's actually a reunification with our own essential being. So, if I, were to, if I were to define God, I would say it is our essential being. Okay. Um, you know how a few minutes ago you quoted, I think it was Richard Dawkins, as having said that, you know, well, we looked through telescopes and we looked through microscopes and we didn't find God anywhere, and so we can just toss the notion. I would say that when, when we did that, God was staring us in the face. You know, because you look at anything with, you know, if, I mean, if we just sort of take things for granted and just dully go along and not actually pay attention to what we're actually looking at, then fine, there's, you know, it's a pretty mundane world. But if you actually can contemplate what you're looking at, it's marvelous. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, you know, just take your fingertip and, and consider what you're actually seeing here in, in terms of like, you know, the anatomical structure and the cellular structure and the molecular structure and subatomic and the whole thing from top to bottom. There's every single iota of it is a marvel that is obviously not a random process. It's obviously not little marbles somehow randomly colliding with one another and producing a finger or a body or a, or a world or a universe, there's this, it seems to me, from my simple perspective, that there is kind of an infinite intelligence governing our, our, our every iota of creation from, from the biggest to the smallest and everything in mm -hmm. between. That to me is God. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, then I would add, and also not only is, is that staring us in the face, is God is that which is staring. Exactly. As, well. as Muktananda said, God dwells within you as you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So God is, God is that which is staring at God staring us in the face. Yep, yeah. And uh, perhaps Richard Dawkins would, you know, if he turned his attention 180 degrees inward, then he could begin to, you know, recognize his essential nature as that. Maybe, but, yeah, but yeah. He, could, he could in principle. In, yeah, eventually. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, scientific yeah. experiments may take a while. You, you know, you don't expect every experiment to just happen in an afternoon. There's experiments which might take 20, 30 years yeah. to conduct. And, yes. and the search for God could be one of those. Yes, and I mean, I think it's important to recognize, you know, you and I, we've both been on our journey for probably 50 years now. And it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a journey of awakening, which has mm -hmm. many different stages and phases and lots to come. Yeah, but I mean, talk about anomalies. I mean, how do materialists, and you would know this better than I, having really 
studied science, uh, how do they account for the incredible orderliness of nature? I mean, sure, we, we, Darwin, okay, yeah. Ra random selection and, and evolution, just fine. But how about the, why does it happen that way? How about the intelligence behind that? Right, yeah, well, these are all, I mean, big and fascinating questions. I would say the current scientific worldview, or my interpretation of it, is that complexity arises naturally in systems. And so it, it, in evolution, it's inevitable that systems, more and more complex systems will evolve. Why? Why should they? Why should they? Because systems are always, things are coming together, let's take you know, things come together and meet systems. If they work better that way, then this is Darwin, that system works better. Other things that don't work better, don't stay. And so any system which is in a sense more stable, and I think that's what Darwin was pointing to, you know, its survival is better, so that's a more stable system. More stable systems hang on, less stable systems don't. And if you look at the, the number of species against the complexity, what's happened in evolution is not that life has got more complex, but there's a sort of, there's a graph of the, the number of species. And the, the, most species are still the, the simple cells, the bacteria. That's where the numbers are. And the, yet the other end of the spectrum is balancing that with some very, very complex species like ourselves. But it, it isn't that the whole of life's become more complex. It's like complexity arises out of the system at sort of the tail end of it. So I would say that the complexity is, is something that just happens inevitably, almost statistically. It's any, any more complex system that's going to survive, that's going to be more stable, will, will be there. It, it just it happens like that. But then I think there's more interesting questions around this, is why is the universe stable and here in the first place? And this is what's called the anthropic principle, that lots of parameters like the actual strength of the gravitational field, the, the charge of the electron, the masses of elementary particles, the things called the fine structure constant, all these things, if you tweak them by a tiny percent, the universe doesn't work. Right. How, how is it that these, these things are exactly as they should be? Now, the sort of the hard scientific approach says, well, um, that's just the way it is. If these things weren't right, the universe wouldn't exist. It's a one in a zillion chance the universe exists and exists long enough for species like us to evolve and observe it. Um, and yet there's a, the growing feeling is that, and this is coming out of people like Wheeler and physicists like that, that the purpose of the universe is actually to know itself. And the, it's actually so structured that it will actually evolve into not only living systems, but living systems like ourselves who can actually look back and reflect upon the universe, that it's actually a self-learning system. And so that, to me, although Wheeler doesn't go that far, that actually brings in consciousness again, that if the universe is ultimately consciousness, is an aware field of being, then you could say the purpose of being aware is to know. And so as the systems get more complex, so that knowing becomes more complex. And here we are, perhaps on the edge of knowing the unified field theory. But then equally, that knowing can apply to ourselves, the, the inner knowing. So 
And so it's coming back to your question, I don't, I don't see it so much as a miracle of how does this happen by chance. It's almost inevitable that a field of aware being, as it inevitably becomes more complex, the intelligence will come out. The intelligence is there innately, but as the systems become more complex, so that intelligence will shine through more and more. Yeah, I think intelligence is the key word, because a lot of times when we talk about being or consciousness, it has a sort of a plain vanilla con connotation, yeah. you know, where yeah. it just seems like flat nothingness or, or yeah. emptiness or some such thing. But when you actually look at anything uh, closely enough, you see evidence of unfathomably great intelligence. Yes. At least I do. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and that seems to me would be an anomaly that's really knocking on the door of materialistic science. I, yes. I should think, you know, you say you talk about the hard problem of how does consciousness arise. I should. I also sh think they should be scratching their heads about how in the heck, you know, does this piece of paper exist? I mean, you know, the the you know, you look at anything, the molecules in it, and uh, what a marvel, you know, that they, yeah, oh, they yeah. they spin around the way they do and hold together and and so on. You know what? Who set that up? You know, those, why, sh why shouldn't it all just fall apart? I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Everything to me is evidence of intelligence. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm kind of just, maybe just because I have this spiritual orientation. I'm just trying to understand yeah, yeah. How, how, if I were to argue with a, a scientist who had a materialistic perspective, would he end up mopping the floor with me because I'm just naive in terms of, you know, certain understandings? Or would I somehow be able to prevail in, in a discussion like this? <laughs> Oh, the way most of these discussions go, both of you would feel you've mopped the floor for the other one. <laughs> <laughs> Come away feeling the other person didn't get you. They were stuck in their views. Yeah. That's what tends to happen, unfortunately. Huh. I don't know. I think, I, I think I'm somewhere in the middle on that. I think mm -hmm. I'm somewhere in the middle. As I say, I see it, intelligent, intelligence is, an, is a natural emergent quality. When intelligence, life, being aware... All these things are somehow, they're not synonymous, but they're deeply, deeply connected. Mm. That's why I say I think awareness as we know it, probably only, which is actually having a representation of the world, a picture of the world, actually experiencing the world, probably comes into being with at the level of the complexity of the cell. Intelligence? Yeah, um, awareness. Awareness, awareness. Yeah, and so... If, yeah, you, if this, you distinguish awareness from consciousness, I mean, we're saying yeah, yeah. consciousness is the fundamental thing, but you mean yeah. self-reflective awareness well, not, I mean, or responsive awareness in some way. Yes, having a, I would say having a representation, a picture of the world, having an internal, having an internal world, right. put it that way, having an internal world. And again, there's no clear line. I mean, where does, you know, a living cell is clearly alive. Is DNA alive? Is a virus alive? You know, they, these yeah. get to gray areas. And as the... If like the grayness disappears and life becomes more and more noticeable, at the same time, I would say the awareness is becoming more and more noticeable. And I, I would actually say the intelligence is also beginning to emerge and become noticeable. That's in terms of the ability of the, of the thing to somehow respond to stimuli and things like that. But I mean, let's take it to the level of a rock. Rock has, it seems pretty rock-like, <laughs> pretty dull, yeah. uh, doesn't have a lot of responsive right. uh, ability. But if you look closely at it, there's this marvelous crystalline structure and, yeah. and the, the molecules and the atoms are all kind of behaving in a very orderly way according to certain laws. So, I mean, even that, is, it may not be aware of itself in any meaningful way, but it's a mass of intelligent functioning. 
Um, I don't know. I would question that. I mean, is it, firstly, is it actually functioning? It's not, it's stable. There's no processing going on except at the, you know, the atomic level, the exchange of quarks and photons, which are holding the substance together. It isn't, it's static. It's not actually yeah. functioning. Well, I don't mean functioning as a tree yeah. is functioning or something. Right. A tree, with obviously, the sap flowing and all this. But on a subatomic, atomic, molecular level, there's a an yeah. orderliness evident. There's an order. I would say yes. There's an orderliness. Yeah. That is that's Wh a which bespeaks some sort of intelligent agency or? Uh, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure. It's like I mean a crystalline structure. Basically, a rock is a crystal. It's right. a crystal structure. And crystal structures emerge as just the most efficient way of packing things together. Why should you they? Know? Why should efficiency be a quality of nature? Um, it's, well, if you take a, you know, a group of billiard balls and you push them all together by force, you, mm -hmm. know, you put them into a triangle or something, mm -hmm. you know, to fit them all in, there's a certain way in which they fit together, yeah. which, is, which is efficient, which saves energy. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with a crystalline structure. There's certain ways you can arrange atoms and depending upon what the atoms are, they'll fit together into a stable form. And that stable form persists in time. You, if the atoms aren't bonded into that stable form, then they'll, they'll fall apart. Yeah, but what I'm saying, pardon my obstinacy, what I'm saying is that there's nothing arbitrary or capricious about that tendency of things to form into a stable form. There is some kind of orderliness inherent in the functioning of creation that would cause such a thing to happen in the first place? I, I differ. I, I, I think it's inevitable that things will fall into the, you know, the most stable, lowest energy state. It's just the way things are. Hmm. But is, is anything really the way things are? Isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why are things the way they are? It's like the little kid who always, every answer you give, they say, well, why? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, you know, I'm sort of like, I, like you, I had a TM background, and, and I'm kind of hearkening back to, you know, Marshy's way of thinking, which is that there's this sort of, if you remember the Science of Creative Intelligence course, Lesson, yes, lesson yes. 8, you know, uh, yeah. when existence becomes conscious, then consciousness becomes intelligent and assumes the role of creative intelligence. So it seems like, yeah. you know, intelligence is an emergent property of existence and that from the very foundation of life, intelligence emerges in the very first stages of manifestation and that everything thereafter as manifestation continues is a, a play and display of intelligence and that we can kind of look at anything and and if we look closely enough we see that intelligence on display yeah well it's funny i, I would interpret what he says as slightly different okay. slightly differently when he says when existence becomes conscious to me existence has the capacity for awareness. When he says existence becomes conscious, it would mean when existence develops awareness, which is like when life begins to emerge out of existence, then intelligence begins to appear. But existence is already the very nature of existence, of being, is to be aware. So existence doesn't develop, it doesn't become aware, it is already aware. Mm -hmm. But what it becomes is awareness, which is when the capacity to be aware takes form. So when the capacity to be aware takes form, which I would call awareness, mm -hmm. then intelligence emerges and creativity emerges. 
So you're talking about the stage at which some sort of rudimentary life form has arisen. There, it's probably that stage where there's some, there's some complexity, there's processing of information. So DNA, for example, is static. DNA is, is you know, a very complex crystal, you could say. It's mm -hmm. a chemical molecule. DNA doesn't do anything. It's like a library which the cell consults. The cell consults the library and says, oh, I want this protein. The DNA says, this is how you make it. Here's a protein. Mm -hmm. But it's static. So DNA isn't alive. There's no processing going on. That the processing is within a cell. And what we're learning is incredibly complex processing we're discovering. That is the processing of information in which the awareness begins to take form through that processing, processing of information. Awareness takes form. So that is existence, this is the way I interpret it, that is existence becoming awareness. It has always been, has that potential for consciousness. It's very, the very nature of being is to be conscious. That's very nature. So existence doesn't become conscious, it is, but it does become an awareness. It begins to have a form. Okay. So I would say, so when being, I would, I would rephrase that, when being takes form, then intelligence and creativity arise. Yeah, intelligence and creativity arise in some sort of, um, you know, living way, in some, in some sort of biological way. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it, it took billions of years before there was any DNA in the universe, if the Big Bang yeah. Theory is correct. And, and in the meanwhile, stars were getting formed and exploding yeah. again, and all kinds of stuff was going on all according to laws of nature which still are operative in the universe. There were sort of orderly, intelligent, governing principles upon which all this stuff was happening in order for the universe to evolve to the point where DNA could exist. To my, maybe it's a matter of semantics here, but to my way of thinking, there was you know, as much intelligence in the universe three seconds after the Big Bang as there is now. It just hadn't evolved. The processes hadn't gone on to the point where there were forms like ourselves who could sit and reflect upon it and talk about it. But the whole thing was still as much permeated with God and, and, <laughs> con and contained within God. God is in everything and everything is in God as it has always been. I can see we, we can continue differing on this for a long time, <laughs> uh, which is good. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, as you say that, I, you know, I think one of the key things here is when you say the laws of nature, mm -hmm. I don't see the laws of nature are laws that have been laid down and this is how things should happen. What we call the laws of nature are things we have discovered about how things inevitably function. Right, which worked just fine whether or not we discovered them. I mean, gravity was yeah. doing its thing long before Newton came yeah. along, right? Yeah, and you know, the, the inverse square law of gravity is you go twice as far away from an object, then the gravitational f force is a quarter. And this is, it just comes out of the mathematics. Yeah. And, and to, me, to me, mathematics exists independent of the universe. This is my view, is mathematics is something we discover we don't create. It's there already. And I think if we ever discover other extraterrestrial species, we may disagree on what we think the universe is, but we will agree on the mathematics. Hmm. Once so, we so it's not independent, it's intrinsic then, you're saying? Yes. Yeah, you said independent of the universe. So you're saying that mathematics, principles of mathematics are kind of built into the fabric of creation from day one. I mean, yes, you know, the way yes. gravity worked uh, 13 billion years ago when the universe was maybe, you know, 700 million years old is 
the same way it works now, and, and it could have been understood mathematically then if there had been anyone yeah. around to understand it was working the same yeah. way. Yeah. Yes, and, and to me, physics falls out of the mathematics. Mathematics starts from 1 plus 1 equals 2, mm -hmm. you know, and we can have other mathematical systems where 1 plus 1 equals 3, but basically you've got two things, there are two things, there's two, there's two fingers, two, and then that's all you need to actually build up the whole system of numbers, of rational numbers, of irrational numbers, of algebra, calculus, differential equations, systems, set theory, group theory, the whole of modern physics begins to unfold in a logical way from very, very simple assumptions. But this, this is a whole other It is. But, so all I've been trying to get at, actually, with this whole yeah. argument right. is that, you know, that Conscious, we, we, you know, we kind of agreed early on that consciousness is the sum and substance of creation. Everything is conscious. Consciousness yeah. is kind of playing within itself. And yeah. all I'm trying to get at is that it, it appears to me that consciousness has innate within it the quality of intelligence and that that intelligence is virtually infinite and that it, you know, from the vast macroscopic to the tiny microscopic, that there is evidence of it and that that is God. I mean, by, if we want to use that term, which is, of course is a terrible term to use because it's <laughs> so misunderstood, but that the whole show is just the totality, Brahman, containing everything and just playing within itself with sort of this infinitely great potential for creativity, orderliness, <laughs> and so on. <laughs> I mean, and I'm dwelling on this point because it fascinates me and because it's the title of your book, you know, From Science to God. So if we really want to take that title to its ultimate conclusion, then I don't know. I'm, I'm suggesting that what I'm saying here is perhaps on the distant horizon of science as we now practice it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it may be. It may be. <laughs> and you know, and a God-realized soul, someone like Ramana Maharshi or someone like that, um, you know, is actually per perceiving the world in this way. You know, they don't see dead matter. They right. they see the sort of divine at play. Yes. In yes. every little bug, every little rock, yeah. every tree, every yeah. everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we should wait till we are that level of being of Ramana Maharshi. <laughs> Perhaps so. Yeah. But I, I think talking and thinking about it helps to stimulate oh, it. It helps absolutely. to enliven it, you know? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, you know, we're not, I'm not talking about a belief here and neither are you. We're talking about something that we can take as a scientific hypothesis yeah. that you and I have spent the better part of a lifetime already investigating and, yeah. and that we'll continue to investigate and that has exciting implications for us individually and for us as a, as a species, as a society. Yeah. yeah. And all, you know, all I'm doing is just sharing my current understanding. And one thing I know about my current understanding is that it moves on. Yep. Because you're not, you're not one of those stodgy paradigm bound characters. <laughs> you don't have to die to change your paradigm. Right. So this is, this is the 2014 view. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was a new model. Yeah. And that's exciting too. I think, you know, hopefully, and hopefully you don't have to go to the bathroom or something. I'm not keeping you too long, but we'll, we'll wrap this up soon. But I think, uh, you know, genuine spiritual investigation tends to kind of lubricate and loosen your rigidities. 
And, yes. you know, you become more adaptable, more open to new ideas, more mm-hmm. malleable. You know, you, you're willing to chuck it all, if, eh, hopefully. I mean, it's not usually necessary to chuck it all because a lot of it is valid, but mm-hmm. there's an openness to change. And, mm-hmm. you know, you not think, well, it says it in this book and therefore that's the way it is. You know, the universe yeah. is 6,000 years old. There's a book that proves it. <laughs> yeah. You never find yeah. a person who's really lively in a spiritual sense saying anything like that. Yeah. Well, I think this comes back to this thing about attachment. We get attached to our ideas, our things, our possessions, because I think underneath is this belief that they're going to bring happiness. And my theories mm. are the right ones. They're going to make me feel, I feel good about them. Mm. And I think the more we can connect with that sense of feeling okay, independent of our theories and beliefs and what we do, when that sense of being okay is more stabilized in ourselves, independent of our thinking, yeah. then, then that loosens the attachment. That's a good point. You know, I think we want security and there's a fear if we don't have security. And if we glom on to particular beliefs or possessions or experiences in the hopes of finding that security, then we're always on shaky ground, you know, because yeah. you can't find it there. But, uh, but if you really f- have begun to find it or have found it in, in, in that which is, as the Gita says, is indeed indestructible by which all this is pervaded, then there's a genuine sense of security. And then you're real comfortable kind of playing about and, uh, yeah. you know, trying this idea, rejecting that idea, because yeah. you, your security isn't threatened. Right, and it's like, and that which is indestructible, which is always there, is our own as our own being, as our, our own, own being, our own awareness. My consciousness, my consciousness isn't the right word, but right. being aware is always there. Whatever is happening, I am aware, and that sense of being aware is always the same. And the more I can connect with that, rather than what I'm aware of, then that set there's that sense of security, safety. Uh-huh. Yeah. For men may come and men may go, but I go on forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, great. Well, uh, this has been a really lively conversation, as I expected it would. Is there anything that, you know, any stone unturned here that you'd like to unturn and <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of unturned, poke around unturned, under? Lots of unturned stones, but nothing that comes up at the moment to turn over. No, I okay. think we've covered a lot. Well, I've really enjoyed this. It's kind of an ongoing theme for me in a way. I'm going to interview Bernardo Castrop in a couple of weeks, who's written a book called Materialism is Baloney. And uh, I'm kind of gearing up to hopefully interview Sam Harris one of these days if he'll agree to it. I'm just fascinated with this whole theme that you present in your book, you know, about the idea of paradigm change. And, and I feel it has such earth-shaking implications for our society and our world that it's something that is you know, really important to better understand. Yeah, well, hopefully we've, we've done something towards that goal today. Yeah, hopefully we have. Yeah. Great. Well, let me just make a few concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Peter Russell, and his website is peterrussell.com. And go there and check it out. I'll be linking to that from his page on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, which is uh, sort of the mothership of all these interviews. Stands for Buddha at the gas pump. If you go there, you'll see... Um, number of things. You'll see uh, an alphabetical index on the right-hand side of all the people I've interviewed. You'll Under a, a past interviews menu, you'll see a chronological index and a topical index. Um, eventually, we're even going to build a geographical one, So, because you know, I, I get emails from people saying, is there anybody in the Warsaw area that I can get in touch with? And uh, so we'll work, that'll be something 
could use a database expert to volunteer for that if you're listening. There's a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking. It makes the whole thing possible if you feel inclined to do that. There's a place, there's a tab to click on to sign up to be notified by an email each time a new interview is posted. There is a link to the audio podcast of this, which you can listen to on iTunes or any one of those other podcast readers. There's a discussion group that crops up around each interview, and Peter will have his own page in that, his own thread, so I'll be creating that. And of course, again, a link to Peter's website and a link to his books on Amazon so you can purchase them if you, if you wish. And Do you do anything, Peter, in terms of um, seminars or retreats or courses or online sessions or anything else that people can interact with? Um, I do uh, occasional lectures, conferences. I, I have an online meditation course mm -hmm. which people can access through my website. Yeah, it's called How to Meditate Without Even Trying. <laughs> That's the, the only way to do it. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I suspect that you probably, well, we won't get into all that, why you're not teaching TM anymore. Neither am I. Anyway, it was a good thing, but it's awfully expensive. Good. So a person could actually hopefully learn to meditate by looking at that. Yes. Yeah. 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 Or at least give something a try. You know, you can yeah. give it a try, see if it works for you. Yes. Great. And you have a YouTube channel which uh, I could also link to, which uh, I've listened to a lot of your talks. And, and you, know, you even have a guided meditation that you do on there with Shauna Shapiro. So great. So anyway, thank you very much. And, it's been a pleasure. Uh, yeah, enjoyed it. I did too. I'll see you at the SAN conference. You're, you're yes. going this year, aren't you? Yes. Good. Yes. See you down there. Thanks to everyone who has been listening or watching. And we'll see you next week. Okay. Bye for now. Bye for now.